Hello everyone, welcome back to the podcast on Germany. My name is Jacob, and today we have a special episode with Katja Hoya, who is going to be telling us a little bit about her book, Amazing Timing. Today is the 150th anniversary of the formation of the German Empire, really the first time that Germany is truly unified in a nation, you know, with without Austria. And she is releasing a book discussing the German Empire from its creation to its downfall. Okay, yeah, uh, thank you for coming on to the show and telling us about your book. Uh, thank you for having me. Before we actually got into the book, I was thinking we could just spend uh, just a little bit of time talking about the empire, catching people up on a couple of just uh, brief notes about it. So that way they understand the subject that we're talking about. Yes, so you were saying the 18th was the formation or the date of the formation of the um, empire itself. That's basically the date on which the, the proclamation of the empire happened. So when it was sort of starting to exist as a, as a state on paper, um, if you will, with Otto von Bismarck as first chancellor, sort of reading out a piece of paper at the Palace of Versailles that said, um, Germany is now a nation state unified and, and made up of all of the individual um, states that existed prior to to that. And so really it starts from there. And the next few decades we would see a, a dramatic sort of development of, of nation forming and, and the idea that, that the German people had to sort of start yeah, getting used to being in the same country, really stop being Bavarian, stop being Rhinelander, stop being Berliners and start being Germans. And in order to do that, both Bismarck and, and his successors really tried to to create a sort of sense of nationhood that just didn't really exist um, before 1871. Yeah, because uh, before 1871, it's uh, over 20 nations, I believe. It's like 20, is it 27 nations? <laughs> More than that even. So it's really a, a complete hodgepodge of individual principalities and states. Some are free states, some are free cities. And you ended up basically with all of that being mashed into one um, empire overnight almost. Um, and in, in the face of a, of a foreign enemy rather than an internal sort of attempt to, to try and pull together. Which we can we can sort of see being a common theme for a lot of these unifications uh, during these later parts of uniting against a common enemy rather than just peacefully uniting, such as the Italians. The empire, it, it lasts till uh, the end of World War One. It's not the longest lasting uh, government of uh, the Germans. I mean, it's kind of hard to beat the Holy Roman Empire, even if you consider consider that a government or if you don't but it's kind of put into the shadow of world war ii and nazi germany and so forth you give us some of the highlights that is the german empire yeah that's that's absolutely right what you just said about it having been pushed into the the shadow of the of the third reich if you will of, of the uh, nazis and the and the second world war and in many ways, both in Germany and in, in other countries, it's it's almost been interpreted as a sort of forerunner of the of the Nazis, which I think is completely wrong. One of the main reasons why I wanted to write my book is to give it the place in history that it deserves as a distinct attempt to try and set up a Germany that wasn't kind of like a sort of mini mini Third Reich that was just not what it what it was. So when it was first set up, Otto von Bismarck did actually try um, and implement an, an element of of democracy into this system because he knew the German people wanted unification and, and wanted to be in, in one common state. And it was actually the elites who'd, who'd opposed this for, for their own reasons. And the nod that he gives to that is, is the Reichstag, is the German parliament, which is introduced as a fully functioning parliament. 
uh, with free and and general elections for all males over the age of 25. And that's an interesting feature of that that's often underplayed because they did get to vote on on laws. Laws did have to go through this parliament um, to become law. Um, And so therefore both the Chancellor and the Kaiser did have to work quite hard to convince the the German people that their ideas were were worthy of basically passing through this Reichstag. They also held the strings to the military budget, which is an interesting um, sort of lever that they used quite a lot. So when the Kaiser and, and his chancellors were sort of gearing up towards war, they were completely dependent on, on funding, of course, for that and for their military reforms. And to get the German people on side with that, they sort of whipped up a, a certain amount of nationalism so that the German people were convinced in the end that they needed a larger navy, needed a larger army. And that in itself led to many of the sort of more dramatic developments. So maybe to give a brief overview, um, it's normally structured into sort of two parts, almost the, the Second Reich. So you've got this first sort of foundation phase after 1871 up to 1890 when when the first german chancellor otto von bismarck is pushed out of office he resigns officially but it's very much a, a clash between him and the new young kaiser wilhelm ii who intends to rule by himself and and take power back for the monarchy and so once bismarck resigns the the chancellors very much kind of are pushed into the background and, and Kaiser Wilhelm himself pushes himself to the fore and, and wants to become the, the focal point of German politics. And so the second part from 1890 to 1914 is a sort of almost distinct period where, where nationalism and foreign policy are far greater than they than they were in, in this early phase. And then obviously the, the First World War is the sort of pinnacle of that and and also the end of, of the Second Reich and, and brings the, the about the fall of, of it and the monarchy as well. Yeah, the, there's Otto von Bismarck is probably one of the most fascinating characters for myself. Just everything he does from pre-unification post. And then, of course, you have uh, mentioned Kaiser Wilhelm II, who for many outside of Germany itself, I'm not sure if inside of Germany, but outside of Germany, has a very negative image. Early monster, going back to that special path uh, that we'll talk about in a, a minute, that's an issue in the historiography. He's seen as a precursor to Hitler and so forth. Uh, there are a couple of other players, of course. Uh, we have Kaiser Wilhelm I, who's uh, Otto von Bismarck is able to work rather well with just because Wilhelm doesn't want to be in his way. And then we have uh, the sec- um, his son, who rules for uh, less than 100 days, if I remember correctly. A uh, very liberal force, and uh, surprisingly a huge what-if in uh, German history that we don't talk about too much, uh, just because it, he is part of this German empire. For, for us in the outside uh, world, looking into the German empire, the big thing that most people recognize with the German Empire is World War One, which is heavily related to foreign policy. Can you give us a little bit background on their other aspects, like industry, colonization, so forth? Yes, there's certainly a, a long build-up, and it's, it's also this. This is one of those dangers of hindsight, and perhaps a classic example of that. In that we obviously know that the the First World War happened, and, and what a huge catastrophe it was. And it leads to a tendency to almost see everything that happened beforehand in industry and in culture, in in the development of the military, as automatically gearing up towards the First World War. And again, this is something that I try to address in my in my book as well. That that is just not the case. There's a lot of stuff going on that is not deliberately geared up towards war. Neither was the First World War inevitable. 
But one of the key developments I think that makes this war such a devastating one is, is the industrial side of things. The fact that Germany at the eve of, of the First World War had turned into a industrial superpower that rivaled the, the most advanced nations in the world in, in the world in terms of its output in, in steel and coal and, and sort of heavy industry, all of which underpins the, the war effort. And so when they start the war, they're totally confident that they can fight this war of attrition because they've got this huge amount of resources and the industrial basis to, to do so. So that's certainly a key development. This is sometimes dubbed the second industrial revolution towards the end of the 19th century. And you just see a huge surge of, of industrial production method, um, but also the development of new technology. And Willem is perhaps the best example of that. He's absolutely fascinated by by the advancements in the te- in, in sort of modern technology. Almost has a childlike, I would almost say, fascination for new new things and new technology. And you see him sort of going around the factories, and you know he he loves his navy as well. So any new kind of shipbuilding techniques, he's there. He looks at it, talks to the engineers. He's got models at home of all of the different you know new developments there. So so he's in a way, I think, representative of this sort of so-called progress optimism that that is often, you know, sort of yeah, wider movement or seen as a wider movement at the time. And I think that in many ways led to a situation in 1914 where people were almost keen to see what that new technology could actually do, specifically in, in military terms. So Willem had built up the Navy, for example, to, to become the second largest naval force in the world. And then he sat there at the eve of 1914, sort of almost thinking, well, I wonder what would happen if we pitted that against the Royal Navy of of the British. And it didn't help, of course, that he was quite a keen sort of sailor himself and described himself as such. Um, He would often kind of walk around pompously and say, or us seamen, we do this, that and the other. Yeah, basically all of the sort of jovial occasions on which he pitted himself and his boats and ships against, you know, those of his English pals. It's an interesting almost kind of dry run of what would later happen in earnest. And I think psychologically, certainly there was a, a certain desire in him, this competitive streak that wanted him to to see his own power and that of his country pitted against the, the English. And I think that's also true for many Germans on a, on a sort of wider basis. Na- nationalism was a large factor in everyone's mind at that point. So wanting their nation to be the strongest, the most powerful, uh, the best in every category. Yeah, the Germans were definitely not alone in wanting to be superior uh, in any competition. The Germans were indeed actually uh, leading in several areas. You you mentioned uh, industry. Um, It was also, uh, I believe you talk about uh, scientific as well. They were uh, leaders in Nobel Prizes and so forth in certain fields. Were there any other areas that they were uh, considered leaders in any other fields? Yeah, the, the, the sort of key industries, I'd say, is, is sort of electrical goods. So think, you know, you see companies like Siemens, for example, starting to drive the electrification of, of Berlin and Hamburg and other cities, uh, very much pitted against their huge rivals, AEG. Um, and both of them are, of course, still, still around. They also started making things like you know, sort of early washing machines and, and sort of household goods and that sort of stuff. So that's on a sort of civilian basis. But it's again, perhaps, a, you know, a symbol of, of how fascinated people were with this. So when all of a sudden you see the arrival of, say, trams and trains being, you know, sort of electrified and, and carrying people from A to B in the, in the cities. Um, so Siemens, for example, the first line that they laid was, was from their factory to to where most of the workers lived in Berlin so that they could actually start to commute, which is a completely new you know, sort of concept commuting to work as opposed to just living close to 
to where you're working. So those sorts of things work in industry. And then the other one is, is the chemical industry. So uh, you basically get sort of, you know, BASF and then large companies like that setting up um, who are making things like dyes and solutions and other stuff, which is, again, hugely relevant, of course, for the for the war effort as well. So in many ways, both of these fields are highly specialized industries as well that require the workers to have a, a huge degree of education and training and, and specialization which in turn allows them to, to draw relatively high wages for their work. So it's not certainly not the worst place in the, in the world to be as a sort of working class person at the time either, because the working conditions were reasonably good compared to, to other industrialized nations at the time because of the high degree of, of specialization that, that you see in Germany compared to other areas. Education, perhaps, and it's not exactly an industry, but in itself a, a huge factor that, that plays a role. So primary education is made compulsory, which leads to literacy rates of over 99%. So that's that's extremely high at the time, which in turn has a huge sort of cultural impact. So people read more novels are being written and, and read for the first time on a mass basis. And the sort of mass culture is beginning to develop, which for better or worse helped with the nationalism in the sense that people were kind of starting to consume the same sort of cultural fare, if you will, and, and ended up being more like-minded than they would have been in, in 1871. That's actually very fascinating on a uh, global aspect because we, uh, especially here in America, we see the impact of this German culture expanding and uh, solidifying as it actually influences our own. German becomes the most popular language to learn in school, in high school, let alone in college. During uh, the late 1800s and then up to the beginning of World War One. German language is still one of the primary languages that most of our scientific community was having to learn just because, thanks to this education revolution in Germany, that was where a lot of the research was being done and all those papers were being written in Germany uh, and German. So it it just made sense to learn the language than trying to try to find a translation. There were so. certainly a lot of links as well due to the huge emigration from, from Germany to the US in that time. And, and also the even people that didn't actually leave, almost everyone would have known someone that, that left because there were just so many people over generations as well towards the end of the or second half, certainly of the 19th century that had left and, and gone to America. And it's an interesting there's an interesting cultural backlash in Germany to that as well, in that you get people like Karl May, for example, writing sort of Wild West novels. He had never been to America before, but wrote these very, very popular stories of, of Winner to an old Shetterhand who, who became sort of, you know, it's a, it's a sort of story between a cowboy and an Indian. It's kind of working together on the same side and, and they become hugely popular in the late 19th century in Germany, despite the fact that the people reading it themselves would have no direct experience of of the wild west as they sort of imagined it but it created this sort of idea in, in people's minds of america and americanism which is an interesting sort of countercurrent to the nationalism that's beginning to to develop in germany and not mutually exclusive either so it's the very same people that would stand there and, and cheer the the shipbuilding and the military expanding of the of the armed forces and at the same time you know, have this sort of fascination for, for America and Americanism. And those people also would be main supporters of the colonial empire that Germany will build, which is third uh, largest by the beginning of World War One. It's mainly based in Africa, if I remember correctly? Yes, the expansion, because basically Germany is just too late to the table at that point. So once they'd unified in, in 1871, Bismarck himself is very, very keen not to go overseas and not to establish an empire, an empire because he's concerned about the fact 
that heat overnight just creates the largest European nation, both in terms of, of space as well as population. And he knew that the French, the Russians, the, uh, the Dutch, the, the English, of course, you know, they'd all look at Germany now as a, as a rival. And so he thought the first task has surely got to be to establish Germany as a European nation, normalize it as a European nation and, and convince everyone that it's peaceful and it's not a threat to anybody in Europe so that it doesn't collectively get destroyed by the, by the countries it's surrounded by. And so he very, very reluctantly and grudgingly acquired the first few German colonies only to help out the, the private individuals such as Luderitz who sort of went to Africa and, and started buying off colonies here and there for their private enterprises, then quickly realized that actually running a colony thousands of miles away with, with local populations that don't want to be in your, in your colony is perhaps not an easy thing to do. And when they run into trouble and basically ask the German state for, for armed protection, at that point, Bismarck is reluctantly stepping in and uh, kind of establishing protectorates, as they were called, rather than colonies in Africa. That then later, after Bismarck has resigned in the in the 1890s, it really kicks off then because of Willem's own desire to to expand. His ideas are very much forged by um, social Darwinism, which was a kind of very popular concept and became more popular. So this sort of idea that European nations are pitted against each other in the same way that a sort of Darwinist jungle pits the species that live in it against each other. And you have to be the strongest and the fittest to survive and find your place. And as empire building was kind of the, the thing of the day, Willem was convinced that if Germany doesn't catch up with Britain and France in that respect, they will fall behind and eventually be crushed um, by them. And it's not just him personally, that was a very sort of fashionable thought that drifted down from the elites into the middle classes and from there into the working classes and, and sort of became a pervading thought at the time. And so under Wilhelm in the late 1890s, certainly from 96, 97 onwards, the expansion into, Af into Asia is also beginning, not on a huge scale because there's simply not that much territory left to, to, to move into, but they get Tsingtao as a, as a sort of port town in, on, the, on the Chinese coast, a little bit of Samoa, which was later split with the US. And West Samoa, and then a few islands like the Marshall Islands and the Carolingians, and, and those sorts of islands in the in the Pacific. Um, it's never an empire that's economically worthwhile. They always spend more money than they than they receive, and in fact, they have more of an economic relationship the Germans with British colonies than than with their own. So that the trade with British colonies is far outweighing that with, you know, compared to their to their own. So in many ways, the empire colonial empire is more destructive than it's it's actually beneficial to to the german reich and it does leave black mark on german history one that is again typically overshadowed by the black marks that will be coming with world war ii and uh, nazi germany and the holocaust we have a pretty good overview of the german empire now We've talked a bit about its foreign diplomacy. We talked a little bit about its industry, its scientific and educational advances and its empire. Uh, tell us a little bit about your book and just, you know, where where do you fit in in this uh, the history of the empire and the historiography of the empire? Perhaps I should explain this. So I was born in Germany and, and also lived there for most of my adult life and went, and went to university there and then moved to Britain and found that in, in both countries, the study of the empire and of Germany in itself had very much focused on, uh, first of all, Nazism and the Third Reich and also the Second World War. 
in Britain, there's a huge focus, of course, on the on the First World War, much more so than in, in Germany, actually, which was, was something that surprised me, is, is that in Germany, it's very much fallen into the shadow of, of the Second World War for, for perhaps obvious reasons. But neither nation had looked on a broader scale on how this all came about and, and actually where is this all coming from, all of these developments, where where is Germany's origin and therefore also many, you know, the origin of many of the developments that happened in Europe in the 20th century. The research that has been done on the Second Reich and, and on this period that I studied is very much on, on a very, very academic and specialised level. So there were people like Hans-Ulrich Behler, for example, in the sort of mid-20th century who looked very much at the economic history of it and and focused on that side of things, on industrialization. And then there's a whole strand of history that looks at the emergence of the of the First World War and the various different reasons for that. But I felt there was certainly a, a sort of gaping hole there, just looking at it as a as a country, as a as an attempt to set up a Germany. And therefore on a sort of wider basis, looking at, at all of the strands, politics, the social history of it, the economic history of it, and just trying to make sense of it all and in the in the history in the national history of Germany, I think there was a a huge gap there, just trying to pull those strands together, and that's basically what I tried to do in in a relatively compact format. So the book really only has was the two hundred and thirty four I think pages. It's not a huge thing. I, I tried to compress it into a into a narrative that makes sense to a wide audience, and also to you know basically find out what those big strands are, as opposed to looking at individual specialized issues in the way that um, people had done before. So in, in short, I wanted to look at it in its own right as a as a nation, as an attempt to set up a nation, as opposed to, you know, just to make sense of later events. So I, I know World War II is the typical focal point, but I didn't know that Germany doesn't give much attention to World War I at all. What is uh, behind that? I think there's a, well, there's certainly been an attempt sort of from 1949 onwards to try and work out how it had got to you know to this huge catastrophe that the second world war was and, and including the holocaust of course well and i think because that was such a monumental task almost trying to you know find answers to questions of responsibility and culpability and and, and what to do about it so you know germany is still very much working out how to erect national monuments to certain events in its history you know just see the debate around the resurrection of berlin palace now which was the the prussian palace and then effectively very much got destroyed during the during the second world war and then the it ended up on the east german side of the of the border in Berlin so the GDR government just destroyed it and and built its own palace of the republic on top and now the the sort of prussian building has been recreated in that space and even the debates around that are very much around you know is is this nationalism or can we actually look at this period of history with with a more neutral and distant stance now so i think this entire way in which germany modern germany tried to distance itself from the second world war has almost distracted it from things that happened Prior to that, there's certainly always a political dimension to discussing anything that happened previous to or prior to the to the Second World War. And I think for that reason, it's fallen a little bit by the wayside. Not to the point that it's, it's completely ignored, but it's certainly not the center point in, in education or in popular historical culture or in the way that people remember their own history. It's very much kind of we start in 1949 
and that's because of what happened in in Nazi Germany. So I remember at school, for example, we would we would learn about uh, Nazism and the Holocaust and all the things around it. I think we did it three times in in secondary school. You know, at different points in time, just in case we'd forgotten about it from from previous time we learned about it. And always with an angle not to let's find out what happened, but let's draw our lessons from this. So is it, that's very much been the a national effort that's distracted, I think, from everything else. Uh, we as well don't focus much on World War One or late 1800s. We're not comfortable with the idea of us having an empire. So uh, we as well don't focus on that uh, period. But it's it's definitely a different aspect compared to uh, Germany. Ours is much more focused on positive history. We we as a nation prefer to think of ourselves as really, really great. And that's kind of hard to do when you think of about our empire that we built. Uh, for Germany, it seems it's much more just a challenge of trying to figure out what you can cover in your history, what what is allowed. And that has been a big part of not just German policy, but world policy in dealing with Germany. It's just exactly what is allowed. Like uh, uh, Prussia no longer is allowed after World War II. Uh, that was a very interesting information I had to dig up for uh, some research and masters. Does the, the special path, which my listeners know all about and my distaste uh, for the special path, uh, do you think it's played any role in downplaying the empire or overshadowing the empire? I think it's certainly an attempt, if you follow that sort of Sonderweg theory, that has now largely been discredited. But that was very much an attempt to make the Second Reich fit into the story. So this idea that there was always a distinctly German brand of nationalism and militarism that was there. You just mentioned Prussia and then that fit in with that as well. So when the Allies decided to just abolish Prussia in in 1947 and just sit there and go, okay, if we exercise Prussia from Germany, some, you know, sort of purified version of Germany is going to to rise from that and, you know, kind of be a peaceful and, and proper nation now. Um, because Prussia has been taken out. I am actually from Brandenburg, which is just outside of Berlin. So that that was kind of Prussian heartland, if you will. And and I'd never heard the term Prussia until I was about, I don't know, 16, 17, 18, and started doing sort of my own research and looking into it because it was just not a a concept. And I'd say that's beginning to normalize a little bit now in that there are various institutions who look after sort of Prussian museums and and sort of cultural sites and actually call themselves Prussian, whatever it may be, palace or museum and then things again. But that, for instance, fits very much into this idea that perhaps we can now distance ourselves a little bit from that from that special path theory that, you know, kind of there, there is this Germany that was created by Prussia and with Prussia in it. And therefore, it was always going to lead to, to wars unless we we get rid of that sort of element or that streak within the German uh, psyche. And, and that, yeah, as you say, has is, is now largely been discredited and disproved. Unfortunately, there are still defendants of it out there. But for the most part, it has been uh, disproved within the historical society. So what aspects of the empire do you believe need to be focused on that need more attention if you could go further in past you know just 200 pages what what would you have focused on more in order to uh, explain the empire to the audience i think one element that's always been neglected is the democratic side of it so like i was saying earlier about the reichstag and the german parliament and the role that it played it became a huge source of frustration to both bismarck and and willem because they basically had to get its approval for laws and there was no way around that and if 
it fills up with social democrats as it did. So the social democratic party uh, was the largest party, single largest party in the Reichstag in 1912 in the 1912 election. You then all of a sudden have a third or so of the Reichstag sat there up in arms against you and, and they're trying to get concessions such as, you know, shorter working hours or higher wages or, or better working conditions. And you've got to bow to that. And they did. And so the welfare state element, for example, that is there in Germany, Bismarck creates a pension system for the first time ever. There's male universal suffrage, which is rare still at the time. And all of these elements kind of just fall by the wayside if you focus on nationalism and militarism all the time and see it as a sort of semi-dictatorship that that was doomed to fail in any case. Uh, there's trade union membership. There's three million trade union members in, in 1914, all of which, had they decided to, to go into a general strike, could have done significant damage to the war effort. Um, and so once again, concessions had to be made and, and the working class had to be promised that after the war, once they'd made their contribution to it, there, there would be more democracy. And that's the reason, or certainly a, a key reason, why they why they joined to fight is because they're being told by the by the political party and by the trade unions that they just have to defend the fatherland now and then once they've done that we can look at more democracy and and more rights and perhaps a fairer system and i think had they won the war they would have certainly had a hard time going back to the regime as it stood in 1914 so that side of things i certainly think needs to be highlighted more and perhaps i would have done that more if i, if I had had more uh, space in that book well, fascinating. Uh, as you said yourself, you didn't know about Prussia until you were 16 years old, which I find fascinating. Um, I knew about it basically uh, since I could start reading, but I was raised in a history-loving uh, family, so we read anything and everything we could on history. You, you've mentioned, you know, World War One, German Empire. That is not really talked about that much at all in general education. So what got you into the German Empire? What got you interested in? Well, I'm from... East Germany, as, as perhaps became apparent from what I said earlier, and it's an, it's an interesting, there's so many layers of history that you grow up with. So like I was just saying about the Prussian thing, I think if you'd grown up on the Western side, it would have been an, a more sort of acceptable thing to do. But because of kind of East Germany's aversion to all of these things, it was even more of a taboo until sort of relatively late in the, in the GDR history, where it sort of got rediscovered to some extent. But on the whole, it just wasn't a concept. So, you know, you sort of grow up wondering, you know, well, what am I? Am I a German? Am I, am I an East German? Am I a Prussian or, or a Brandenburger? Or what is it exactly that defines my sort of national identity, if you will? And I've always grappled with that and found that a fascinating thing. Um, so that was one side of things. And the other side was that when I was at school, which was sort of in the early 90s, we had history teachers that would have been history teachers five or six years earlier and taught a completely different side of history. And I remember distinctly, we had a huge debate with our history teacher where we basically said to her, so a few years ago, you basically told everyone that capitalism is an evil thing. And this is what our national history is, basically a history of the working classes oppressed by, you know, the sort of those with the means and, and power of uh, production <laughs> and all of that. And now a few years later, you turn the whole thing around and tell us that, you know, the GDR was an evil dictatorship. How does that work? And she just shrugged and, and sort of went, well, you know, whoever pays my bills, you know, what am I supposed to do? And that in itself raises its own questions, you know, when you're sort of very consciously aware of the fact that you're being told a story mm -hmm. because it isn't a universally accepted one. And you do go home and your parents will tell you something different from your teachers and your friends will have heard yet a different story from their friends. and. There is no 
coherent national story to Germany. It completely depends on on who you ask. And I don't think that that is something that you find a lot in other countries. I think most and certainly Western nation states that have existed for a long time do have a relatively kind of widely accepted story of who they are and where they've come from. Um, and so I went to university to find out a bit more about that. And Jena is an interest, interesting place to go. It's got connections to all sorts of interesting German characters from uh, Karl Marx to Goebbels, I think, got his PhD from there as well. There's the, you know, the the uprisings in, in East Germany in the 50s. Why did he have an assistant professorship? I can't remember. There's links there as well. And then in the 50s, you got the GDR, kind of pro-democracy uprisings there. It's kind of right at the centre of German history, with whichever way you look at it. And very much specialises in 19th century stuff as well. So I've, I've really enjoyed that and immersed myself there. And, and, and ever since, had sort of planned to, to try and pull all of these different uh, things that I've been exposed to over the over the years together into a reasonably coherent format in the way that I'd make sense of that time period. So that's made me want to look back to where's the origin, basically, of, of all of this, because I feel there's been a lot of um, attention on 1989, 1949, 1933, and maybe the Weimar Republic and maybe the First World War, but most people don't look back any further than that. And I wanted to sort of go back to that and see, perhaps to make sense of, I suppose, the country that I come from. Well, it uh, looks like to be a fascinating book. I'm sorry, guys, I haven't mentioned the title yet. It is Blood and Iron, uh, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, 1871 to 1918. And I, I totally agree with you, Katya. This is a subject that is not well discussed at all in modern historical areas. You're going to find plenty of books, especially with just having, you know, the 100-year anniversary on World War One, a lot more books on World War Two, but the Empire, it just, it always seems to fall into the, the background of these two epic centers of, of history. Uh, and so I'm very excited to actually be able to read your book, which comes out on the 18th. So I'll be looking forward to that. So, well, thank you so much for coming on to the show, for giving us a little bit of background on the Empire, a little bit of background on your book. You guys, you should definitely follow her on Twitter. Her handle is at Hoyer, H-O-Y-E-R underscore cat, K-A-T. Definitely give her a follow. Keep a lookout for this book. Uh, it's going to be online mainly. Is there any stories that are picking up that you know of? The UK version you can get on the uh, book depository, which does worldwide deliveries. Um, and we are just in the process of arranging a US distribution, which will start in autumn of, of this year as well. Going to make us wait. I see how it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, that's great. Before we leave, I just want to ask, do you have any plans for a next project? I'm still considering different projects because book in itself has thrown up so many side issues. You know, as you can imagine, trying to compress this really kind of complex history into into this one narrative so i haven't quite decided yet but there's certainly a lot of different options that this one is so watch the space and yeah definitely more forthcoming i just haven't decided what yet (laughs) there is plenty to explore with the empire it's it gave quite a bit of history for us to study we just have to go out and find it so well thanks so much again for being on the show look forward to the book I guess I'm going to have to wait till autumn, but uh, it'll be on my wish list. Either I'll get it or someone will get it for me when it uh, when it comes. So, well, thanks again, uh, everyone else. I will see you in the next episode. Thank you again for having me. <laughs> my pleasure.